Hey, good morning, my friends, and welcome to another moment of Black History Moment with Bo. And friends, once again, I am proud to say that we are entering, as of today, our 12th season. Now, when I say 12th season, I don't mean our 12th year. I mean our 20th program. So if you add that up, that means 240 stories in our library. Stories of great people and great events. Things that'll make you sad and things that'll make you glad. But most of all, things that are truth. So if you should happen to be a new listener, and we get new ones all the time, I say welcome. Welcome to our program. We are not going to tie up your time or your day. We are a short program, usually 20 minutes or less, just long enough for you to get to work or for you to get to the barbershop or for you to get to the grocery store but long enough for you to hear some truth because we all know that they are banning our books. They are banning our history from most schools curriculum, but that's not going to stop us because programs like this one and others that are out here underground are going to tell the truth. They're going to tell our stories. They're going to let our children and grandchildren know what our life has been about. And we're going to let them know America is afraid of the truth. On December 11th, 1917, 13 African-American soldiers were hanged outside of San Antonio for allegedly participating in the Houston riot. You see, the Houston riot was started after a case of police brutality. At noon on August the 23rd, 1917, police dragged an African-American woman from her home and arrested her for public drunkenness. Now, how can she be charge public drunkenness if she was not in the public but in her home. But anyway, a soldier from the camp asked what was going on and he was beaten and arrested as well. Corporal Charles Baltimore was an MP and when he learned of the arrest, he went to the police station to investigate and he took a beating and was shot at as he was chased away. But rumors reached the camp that Baltimore had been killed and that a white mob was approaching. Soldiers armed themselves and began their march toward the city. And naturally, a riot ensued, leaving 16 white people dead, including five policemen. Four black soldiers also died. The army held three court-martials, following the Houston riot and found 110 African-Americans guilty. Do you believe that? 110? You see, some of the earliest African-American soldiers in the West served in Texas. And the 24th Infantry 
was sent to the state at a time when the area was considered a soldier's paradise. With nice weather, beautiful rivers with plentiful fishing and grassy plains that yielded game for hunting, while Texas might have been a paradise for soldiers and outdoorsmen, it could be a nightmare for blacks in uniform. Violence involving black soldiers in the state was common throughout the first quarter of the 20th century. There were confrontations, most called riots, with white civilians at several stops, including the madness in Brownsville at Fort Brown, where the entire 25th Infantry 1st Battalion was discharged without honor by President Roosevelt as a result of the Brownsville raid. The Army had planned to build 32 training facilities as it entered World War I in April 1917, and Houston's city officials lobbied hard to get one of these posts. Houston got its wish twofold, signing a $2 million contract for a sprawling 7,600-acre National Guard Training Center, Camp Logan, and later Ellington Field as an aviation training site. You see, Camp Logan construction and the arrival of troops meant an estimated $60,000 a week to the Houston economy. You see, the icing on the cake for the Houstonians was that the installation came free of black soldiers, a common request for cities, especially in the South, that sought military business. So opposed were whites to the very sight of black men in uniform that it was not unusual for trains carrying black troops to be fired on as they passed through southern towns. You see, whiteness feared the specter of armed African-American men giving local blacks the appearance of equality and fomenting their own desire to better treatment. And although many of the soldiers were from the South and used to segregation and its Jim Crow laws, they thought their active duty service was a patriotism that would result in some semblance of civility towards them from whites, that they would be treated better. They were gravely mistaken. An army report confirmed that Houstonians' view of black soldiers concluded that both police and white citizens felt that a nigger is a nigger and that his status is not affected by the uniform he wears. And on July the 24th, 1917, construction began for Camp Logan. Houston had gotten its military installation. And on July the 28th, it got 654 men of the all-black 24th Infantry with its all-white commanding officer group. The unit had been dispatched from Columbus, New Mexico, for seven weeks duty guarding Camp Logan's construction. Their arrival in Houston came three weeks after the most violent race war, a massacre really, had occurred in East St. Louis when gangs of whites roamed through black neighborhoods indiscriminately beating and murdering black men, women, and children 
on July the 1st to the 3rd. Some of the 24th soldiers had donated money to the fund to help the black victims in East St. Louis. In striking their deal with the federal government, Houston officials had promised in the spirit of patriotism there would be no racial trouble, that black soldiers would be welcomed, but the city's whites had no such intentions of opening their arms to the 24th, regardless of the length of their stay. Gradually, the soldiers began to routinely disobey the Jim Crow laws especially when it came to public transport and the requirement that they sit in the back of trolleys, which many of the soldiers refused to do. Their disobedience and insolence led to the predictable, harsh enforcement from police and white historians hurled insults at the soldiers at every turn, as did white soldiers and workers constructing Camp Logan. But none were more brazen in their verbal and physical attacks than Houston policemen. Yet for the evening of August the 23rd, the Houston Chamber of Commerce had planned a festive watermelon party to officially welcome the black soldiers. Instead, Houston got a chaotic evening of frenzied terror it would never forget and rarely mention. Now, Newman had been wary of the potential racial problems the move to Houston would present and sought to try to defuse the anger and apprehension over the 24th presence by disarming all of his men, including those whose duty were as military policemen. Except for those standing guard duty at the camp, none of the 24th Men were armed with nothing more than for some billy clubs. However, conditions began to boil over on August the 23rd. And on that morning, patrolman Lee Sparks, whose reputation for brutality against blacks was well known, and his partner Rufus Daniels had pursued a man accused of participating in a dice game. Their chase led them to a house where they arrested a thinly clad woman and accused her of hiding the man. Outside, near the police call box, a 24th soldier approached and asked Starks what was going on and if he could get clothes for the woman. Sparks immediately began pistol-whipping the soldier and supposedly said, That's the way we do things in the South. We're running things, not the damn niggers. Later that afternoon, a military policeman from the 24th, Corporal Charles Baltimore, became involved when he inquired of the soldier's arrest. Baltimore was also beaten by Sparks and then shot as he fled. He was caught, beaten again, and taken to the police station. Baltimore would be released, however. Rumors spread to the point that he had been assaulted unjustifiably, taken to the city jail, and possibly murdered. A group of soldiers urged others 
in the unit to march on the police station, free Baltimore if he was still alive, and kill every policeman they encountered. There was also talk amongst the men that an armed mob of white citizens was heading to the camp. Newman's replacement of battalion commander Major Snow and his staff were never in control. Though he ordered his four first sergeants to collect all rifles and search the camp for loose ammunition and also ordered all soldiers be confined to the camp, Snow had confirmed Baltimore's release from police headquarters. However, he thought that their lives were in danger from an approaching mob became more of a concern to the soldiers who broke into the supply tent, took weapons, and began firing randomly in the dark after someone yelled, Here they come. More than 100 armed soldiers, possibly led by First Sergeant Vito Henry, began their march toward the jail. Henry had at first tried to prevent the men from taking arms, However, at some point joined them in their rampage. One of their victims was a white child who died after being hit by a stray bullet. Another victim who may have been mistaken for a Houston policeman was Captain J.W. Mades of the 2nd Illinois Field Artillery. Also killed was Patrolman Daniels, who had been involved with the beating and arrest of Baltimore. The men never made it to the police station. Some began to desert the march and went into hiding. Others headed back to camp, and Henry stole off on his own. He was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The next day, martial law was enforced, and on the following day, August the 25th, the battalion was headed by train back to Camp Furlong in Columbus, New Mexico. Once there, 118 of them were arrested and charged with murder and mutiny and were sent to the stockade at nearby Fort Bliss in El Paso and to begin their wait for court-martial. Between November the 1st, 1917 and March the 26th, 1918, the Army held three separate court-martials with the first United States versus William C. Nesbitt convening in San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston's Gift Memorial Chapel, which had the only space on post large enough to hold a trial for the first 63 men. All representative by a single attorney working on a mere two weeks preparation. Major Harry Greer was Inspector General of the 36th Division and had taught law at West Point, but had no trial experience and was not a lawyer. Their charges were disobeying orders, mutiny, murder, and aggravated assault. All of the men entered not guilty pleas and throughout the ordeal, even to the gallows, maintained their innocence. Some witnesses may have been coerced into testifying against their fellow soldiers. Others promised leniency 
or immunity, others merely unreliable, but none of the testimony was conclusive that any of the men on trial had participated in the event. In all, testimony was heard from 169 prosecution witnesses, but only 29 for the defense. On November the 28th, 13 of the men were sentenced to be hung. However, they were not notified of their sentence until December the 9th, two days before their execution. For the remaining men, 41 received life sentences. Four were given lesser time and five were acquitted. The army was well aware they were putting the soldiers in a hell of a situation and only had to look at the history of black soldiers in the South and previous violent confrontations in Texas. Yet they reasoned the 24th was the only unit available for the duty of guarding Camp Logan construction. Then gambling on sending the soldiers to Houston for seven weeks and hoping for the best. The Houston Chamber of Commerce and other city officials were blinded by economic dollar signs and foolishly assured the army their black troops would be just fine in a city where African Americans were routinely disrespected and publicly demeaned by whites in general. At least the white citizens were honest about their contempt of blacks in or out of uniforms. However, Chief Brock had no handle on a brutish police force that neither liked nor respected him. In the soldiers' response to their abuse, there was no evidence their actions were premeditated or otherwise planned, more likely fueled by rumors over the arrest of Baltimore and then fear of an approaching mob of armed and angry whites, they acted out of frustration, anger, confusion, and self-defense. Today, the area where Camp Logan was located is called Memorial Park, a tranquil upscale area inviting by a lone marker as a sign of the chaos that took place there 95 years ago. In May of 1924, the city of Houston took ownership of the land to be used as a park dedicated to the memory of soldiers who lost their lives serving in World War I, not to the African Americans whose careers and lives came to a tragic end there. And that, my friends, is the story of the Houston riot and also the story of the 24th Infantry, an all-black unit that found no justice nor peace. That, my friends, is history. That's the stuff that they do not want taught in our schools. And why? because they are embarrassed of it. But it happened, it's fact. It's in America's archives, but they are afraid. They are afraid their children and grandchildren will look at them 
and be embarrassed by their actions. Well, sooner or later, somebody's got to pay the piper. Because when all is said and done, the only things left standing will be the sun, the moon, and the truth. And you may run from it, you may hide from it, but it's going to be there. When you come out of the shadows, it's going to be there. When you've used up all the lies that you can use up, it's going to be there. I know truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth, but it's going to be there regardless. You see, we don't need to hear their excuses or what they have to say for themselves because their actions already spoke about who and what they are. And that music tells me it's once more time for me to get out of here, to end this first day of season 12. But before I go, you know I got a message for you. If the truth makes you uncomfortable, don't blame the truth. Blame the lie that made you comfortable. Until next time, my friends, have a good day. Peace to my ancestors and my elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day.